You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, have you ever had a question answered that led to more questions? Have you ever gotten an answer to your questions, but after you got that answer, you were more confused than before? So that may be a a good summary of what's going on in the book Habakkuk. I said last week, this book reads like the prophet's journal. Habakkuk is has his heart filled with questions and complaints. But the prophet doesn't go to the people to share these questions and complaints. He goes to the Lord. Chapter one begins with Habakkuk asking the Lord a question. The first question from the prophet was, Lord, why are you silent about the sins of your people? The prophet looks around and sees injustice and idolatry And doesn't know why the Lord just doesn't do something about it. Why he allows his people to be such a mess. But then the Lord answers in chapter one. He breaks his silence. He says he will do something surprising. Chapter one, verse five, a famous verse says, Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I mentioned last week, if you grew up around the church, around Christians, you may have heard this verse quoted in a very positive light, like God's about to do something awesome. But here in Habakkuk, the unbelievable thing that God is about to do is that God is about to use his enemies, the enemies of his people, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to bring judgment upon God's people. Jonah could not believe that God would show mercy on God's enemies, as we just saw. Habakkuk cannot believe that God is going to use his enemies to bring judgment on his people. Habakkuk responds with another question, another complaint to the Lord, asking why? And again, from a human perspective, Habakkuk's got some things to complain about, some questions. And his question to the Lord is, why, Lord? We may be bad, But those folks are a lot worse, right? How can you use them? For your Harry Potter fans, this would be like Voldemort being used to bring and pass judgment on Snape, right? Snape's a little dark, but not anywhere compared to the one who must not be named, right? For those who prefer history, this is like Stalin being used to bring judgment upon Nixon for Watergate. Like these things just don't seem to match up don't seem to add up in Habakkuk's head. Habakkuk lays out his best argument against the Lord's plan in the rest of chapter one. But we left the prophet on the wall, sitting and watching and waiting for the Lord to respond. Look at verse one. This is where we left him. I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk made his first two complaints in chapter one, and now he waits on the Lord. He's awaiting for the Lord's answer like a watchman is waiting and watching out for an invading army enemy to come. 
which is a fitting picture for what has been told to Habakkuk at this point. He's told judgment is coming. An army is going to come and going to invade. How long did Habakkuk have to wait for the Lord's answer? We don't know. Habakkuk doesn't tell us. But I'm sure however long it was, it must have been agonizing. I know some of you in this room have gotten bad news from doctors. But then you had to have some more tests done and you had to wait for another phone call and maybe more bad news was coming. Have you ever been there? I know some of you have. It's agonizing to have to wait. We live in a time of constant communication. We have instant answers at our fingertips at all times. When we want to know something, we just ask Google or Alexa or Siri. Maybe she's going to respond to me here in a second. We ask and we wait immediate answers. Waiting has never been easy for anybody. But I think we are probably the worst at it. There's been no culture in the history of the world that's had to wait less than we have. But throughout scripture, we read the people of God are not only transformed by God's word, but we are also transformed by the waiting on God. As we wait for him to intervene. If you wanna see a clear picture of that, read Isaiah 40 soon. The first thing we're gonna see in our text tonight, in verses two through five, is the wait is over. That's our first point. The wait is over, we'll see in verse two through five. Look at verse two with me to begin. And the Lord answered him, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. So even though this is reading like Habakkuk's private prayer journal, the Lord tells Habakkuk to write down what I'm about to say to you. This isn't just for Habakkuk. He's to write it down, he's to tweet it, he's to make it plain and post it for everybody to see. There's an irony here in verse two, that even though the Lord tells Habakkuk to write it down and make it easy for people to read and to understand, verse two is actually pretty difficult to translate. And some of you may have the NIV, the NIV translates this, so that a herald may run with it. But there's two verbs here, run and read. And I think the ESV, which I'm preaching out of here and most other translations get it right, that this is meant to be a warning, that whoever reads this is supposed to run. The Lord is like Jordan Peele here. He's telling his people to get out, to run if they read this. The Lord then affirms what he's about to say. He says, you can take this to the bank. It's going to happen. Look at verse three. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Brothers and sisters, the Lord works on his timetable, not ours. But when he says it, you can believe it. Because you know one of the things the Lord can't do? Hebrews 6 tells us one of the things the Lord can't do. You know what that is? He cannot lie. We serve a God who cannot lie. Our God is not like maybe a well-meaning parent that makes promises then, then forgets about them. The Lord does not forget about his promises. He always keeps his word. 
My kids are good at reminding me of my promises, which is actually, I think, a good model for us from Habakkuk, and we learn this from Moses in the Psalms. One of the things we can do in prayer, even as we bring complaints to him, is remind God of his promises. We can remind him. Remember what Moses is pleading with the Lord about? He's reminding him of the promises he's made to his people. But we can be confident the Lord doesn't forget. Just because the promises may seem slow to be fulfilled in your eyes doesn't mean they won't come to pass. That's why our brother Cole just read 2 Peter 3 for us. Again, Peter in his day, in the first century, there was people mocking and scoffing, saying, okay, Jesus promised to come back. Where is he? So he's going to come make all this right. He hasn't come back yet. Brothers, just, we don't live in the first century, right? We live in the 21st century. 2,000 years later, all the more scoffing and mocking has come. But Peter tells us the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count sloweths, but the Lord is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, wanting all to reach repentance. For us, as we look around, it's a struggle Again, as we see the brokenness of this world, we see, Lord, how long, how long are you gonna allow Jesus to be mocked? How long are you gonna allow your children to suffer? But here in Habakkuk, the Lord is speaking to Babylon coming. Babylon is gonna come soon and they're gonna get to work on Judah. But for the things that are about to be promised that are going to happen to Babylon in judgment. Doesn't happen for another 50 years. Often there's waiting that comes with God's promises. Again, most of us are terrible at waiting. If you ever had a baby or even been around a baby, we're born bad at waiting. And some of us get worse at waiting as we grow up. But the Lord wants to transform us as we get older, as we learn to trust him in the waiting. Faith requires waiting. Here Habakkuk is having to wait on God's promised judgment to come upon those that are bringing judgment on Judah. Which leads us to verse four, which is, the key verse for the book of Habakkuk may be the key verse of the Bible in some ways. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. The main point here is the Lord's people, the righteous shall live by faith. You know, I think the original meaning and message here is that it took faith for the people in Judah to believe that the God's judgment was coming. So what did faith look like for them, the original recipients of this? It actually looked like running. This is how the Lord is gonna preserve a faithful remnant of his people was hearing this warning coming from Habakkuk and they were gonna get their stuff and their family and run. They were gonna get out of Judah. But... What does this mean for us? That the righteous shall live by faith. There's a good Latin phrase called sensus plenier. Somebody say sensus plenier. It's 
It's a good phrase that means there's a fuller sense. This is one of the, one of the reasons why you go to seminary, right? To learn these words. I'm just going to teach them to you so you don't have to go. What it means is because there's a divine author of the scriptures, because the spirit has also inspired the scriptures, that there can be a fuller meaning to the text than what the original author and recipients knew. This verse, the righteous shall live by faith, is quoted three times in the New Testament. One of the places that it's quoted is in Galatians 3, which is one of the most important chapters in the Bible to understand how the Bible fits together. But here in Habakkuk 2 and in Galatians 3, the righteous are being contrasted with the proud. In Habakkuk, the righteous are being contrasted with the prideful Babylonians that are trusting their own power and might to save themselves. But in Galatians 3, verses 11 and 12, Paul is contrasting the righteous living by faith in Jesus compared with the self-righteous people who are trusting in themselves and they're being able to abide by the law. Paul is arguing that we can never be good enough. We can never keep God's law perfectly and therefore we can never be good enough to save ourselves. Christians are justified. We are made righteous through faith in Jesus. The proud trust in themselves, but the righteous trust in the Lord. Pride is opposed to faith. Pride is opposed to faith. This is why the scriptures consistently go after the proud. There's a consistent refrain in the Bible. The Lord opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is why Jesus consistently went after the Pharisees, the most religious group in Israel. Jesus even told a story about this. We spent the fall going through the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable. And he begins the parable by saying this. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That was the Pharisees. He tells a story of a Pharisee this religious leader in Israel and this tax collector, the one who was the most despised by the religious people in Israel, those who had gotten in bed with God's enemies, with Rome, and sold their people out. There's this tax collector who comes into the temple, and the Pharisee sees this man and begins to pray and thank God for all the great things that he's done as a Pharisee, and even thank God that he's not like that tax collector over there. But the tax collector says, Jesus says he can't even lift his head up. With his head down, he beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know what Jesus says? It is that man, that tax collector, that sinner who went home justified that day. The prideful religious man was condemned by his pride. The sinful tax collector was justified by his faith. We are justified by faith. We are made right with God by faith. When we first believe, we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. That's that book that Pastor Isaac just passed out, Conversion. That's when we go from death to life. We are justified. We are made righteous by faith. But this verse is also quoted in Romans and Hebrews to say that this isn't just about the moment of justification when we believe and made righteous through faith, 
but the righteous also continue to live their lives, continue to grow through faith. It takes ongoing faith to be faithful in this world. Hebrews is clear, we can't please God without faith. The Lord's people, the righteous, must live by faith and not by sight. Our founding pastor, Jason Cook, has recently become pastor in Roswell, Georgia, at Fellowship Bible Church there, but his successor there is a guy named Crawford Loritz. And I remember hearing Dr. Loritz say that trust is a muscle. And this is what we get to do as the people of God. We get to have our faith, our trust worked out for the rest of our lives. That's what the Christian life is, is the Lord is consistently being tested and tried and found trustworthy. And we grow to trust him more and more as our faith is worked out in this broken world. And hear me, as your body continues to break down in this broken world, and no matter how much you work out, your body physically is going to break down. Even as your body decays, your faith can be strengthened, can grow deeper and deeper, stronger and stronger. I remember spending a good amount of time in Habakkuk a few years ago after I was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. I had a lot of questions and complaints at that time, especially about, Lord, what does this mean for my family? I had three little kids, a wife that was in survival mode trying to take care of them. Lord, what, how, why? A lot of questions about Iron City at that point. There'd been a lot of transition. Like, Lord, if you take me out, what's going to happen? It was all kinds of questions I had in my mind. It was in that season more than any other in my life, I had to learn to trust the Lord and entrust things to him. Even when our bodies are wasting away, our faith can be strengthened and grown as we grow as believers. So what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. We are being renewed by faith in Jesus. This is how the righteous live. They live by faith. Even when we don't have all the answers, maybe especially when we don't have all the answers, we live by faith in Jesus because we know we have found him to be trustworthy and we can entrust all the things we don't have answers to, to him. So our first point, we see in verse two and five, the wait is over. The Lord has responded to Habakkuk's complaint. Our second point in this text, the second section here is that the woes are coming. The woes are coming. We see this in verse six through verse 19. Verse six here begins the set of five woes written out in five different stanzas that's pronounced upon Babylon. Each woe is targeted at puffed up prideful Babylon. Babylon here is pride personified for us. These people are standing opposed to the Lord in their pride. We're gonna move pretty quickly through these different woes. There's a lot of them to cover here. If you look at the first with me, beginning in verse six. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for, for how long and loads himself with pledges. It's kind of hard to keep track with maybe who's talking through these woes. 
Just know, again, all of this is the Lord's words, but the Lord is speaking through those that will come and taunt Babylon one day. They're going to come and that are, that are Babylon's enemies that are going to be used to bring judgment upon them. So Babylon at this point think that they are really big and bad. But this first word here from the Lord is that Babylon is going to become a joke to the nations around them. That even mentioning the name Babylon in the future is going to bring laughs from their enemies. The mockers will be mocked. Babylon, the taunters, will be taunted. We see next that Babylon, those who have plundered the nations around them, will themselves be plundered. Look at verse 7 and 8. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence of the earth, to the cities and to all who dwell in them. So just because the Lord is using the Babylonians to bring judgment, to bring discipline upon his people, doesn't mean that they're going to escape God's judgment themselves. So that their debtors will suddenly arise. Collection day will come for the Chaldeans. As it's been done, as they've done to others, will be done to them. And know that if you're new to Christianity, Christianity is not a religion of karma. But Christianity is a religion of retribution for the unrepentant. Again, we just went through the book of Jonah together. We know from Jonah that the Lord always, hear me, the Lord always shows mercy to the repentant. Our God loves to show mercy to his enemies, to those who repent. But the Lord will also, because he is holy and just, he will always finally bring judgment upon those who don't repent. Those who persist in their pride will perish. Again, the Lord opposes the proud. Again, the collection day will come. Those who have plundered will be plundered. The same is true for us. The same is true for you. Judgment day will come. And if you've not repented, if you've not turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, it will be similar to Judas. Judas was used for the Lord's purposes, but it said of Judas, it would be better that he was never born than to face God's judgment that was coming. The second woe we see is in verse 9 through 11. Look at that with me. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have desired shame for your people by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. The Babylonians trusted in their wealth to build a city that no one could conquer. You see the language here? They set their nest, their city on high to be safe from the reach of harm. But their earthly security and their wealth will fail them. Judgment is coming for them. Their security will become unsecure. 
The Lord is saying all that will be left of their dwellings is the beams and the stones on the wall. This will stand as a testimony to the end of the wicked. A great psalm to read alongside the book of Habakkuk. We read Psalm 13, which is a great one. Another great one is Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, we see Asaph, again, this worship leader in the temple. He's struggling as he's looking around the world and seeing the righteous suffering while the wicked are prospering. This is hard for Asaph. He says that his feet nearly slipped when he saw this. I don't know what all that means, but this almost caused devastation to his faith, it seems. But then he went into the temple, he says. And one of the things that happened there is he remembered the end of the wicked. That the wicked don't get to take their stuff with them. And more often than not, the wicked lose out on their stuff and have devastation that happens in their life during this lifetime. This is true of everyone. It's true for all of us. We can't take any of our stuff with us. But the Lord of the Babylonians here is saying that their stuff, their stones and beams on the wall will cry out in judgment against them. This is what they were trusting in and their ability to protect themselves from others. But how about you? What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in to protect you? Anytime you're trusting in stuff to protect you, you're trusting in the wrong stuff. You're putting your hope in the wrong place. Remember, that that doesn't mean that you don't build your house on a good foundation. Doesn't mean it's not wise to save some money for an emergency or even, again, save money for your children's children. I was reading the Proverbs this morning. It's a righteous person saves money and gives it to their children's children. What this does mean is that we don't put our ultimate trust in those things. Your gated community can't ultimately keep you safe. Jesus alone can keep you eternally safe. So what are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? Any ultimate trust in anyone or anything besides the Lord will always fail you in the end. Hear me. The righteous must not live by pridefully trusting in themselves and their stuff, by humbly trusting in the Lord and his promises. Say that one more time. The righteous must not live by pridefully trusting in themselves and their stuff, but by humbly trusting in the Lord and his promises. This is how the righteous must live, by faith in him, not in stuff, not even in his gifts, but in him. We see the third woe in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Babylon is being called out for violence and injustice that it was built upon. But I wanna quickly move this to us. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for our city? What does this mean for our country? A couple days ago in the Proverbs, was reading Proverbs 11, which is a repeated refrain that we've also talked about many times here, that the Lord hates an imbalanced scale. This scale in the marketplace that was twisted a little bit to cheat people out of a little bit of money. The Proverbs say consistently, the Lord hates that. He abhors that. How much more does the Lord hate systems and structures that were put in place to intentionally oppress people? 
Some early founders of America thought that America was going to be this new Israel, this new place for the people of God to dwell. Some people, unfortunately, still believe that. But we have proven, if you know the history of our country, through our treatment of native peoples, through slavery, through Jim Crow, through mass incarceration, through redlining, through abortion, through predatory lending, our land is much more like Babylon, brothers and sisters. This is not our home and this land will fall. Every earthly kingdom, including America, will fall in the end. The promise of the scripture in Revelation is the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. As we saw last year in the book of Hebrews, every kingdom of this world will be shaken. There's only one kingdom that can't be shaken. That's not America. It's Jesus' kingdom. His kingdom is the only one that will last forever. And the Lord actually gives us a glimpse of this future coming kingdom in verse 14. Look at that with me. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We began this book with the cries of how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? But our cries of how long, O Lord, will go away on the day of the Lord. Those cries will cease. This living by faith that we're called to in verse, four, in verse four means that we are trusting that one day we will see glory and not injustice cover this earth. It's been said before that to live by faith is to live in the present with God's promised future in mind. The glory and injustice of the wicked will be short-lived but the Lord's glory and righteousness will eternally fill the earth. And if you are familiar with the storyline of the scriptures, the last three chapters of the Bible make it really clear that God's judgment upon the wicked will come and one day everything will be made right. But our work now as a local church, as the people of God, is to pray and to work towards Jesus' kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Our prayer is that we would be a preview to the onlooking world where injustice fills the earth, that they would look on and see a people that actually pursue justice. The world, again, that feels like a survival of the fittest world, they would look on and see a people that show compassion to the weak, where those who are orphans find a home where those who are overlooked are loved and welcomed in as family. We get to be a preview of this coming day when the Lord's glory, his goodness will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. In order to do that, brothers and sisters, we must live for the things that last, not for the things that are passing away. We must live every day in light of the final day. The fourth woe here, I'm just going to summarize for you Super Bowl folks, is in verse 15 and 17. Verse 16, instead of glory, they're going to be filled with shame. The Lord uses some graphic imagery here. And we've got a few children in the room. Some graphic imagery here of, uncir of uncircumcision being shown. These people's shame is about to be showed off to those around them. 
Verse 15, they've used wine to get their enemies drunk and take advantage of them. But the cup of the Lord is about to come for them. The cup they're about to drink is the cup of the Lord's wrath. And the truth is, the Lord's judgment, his wrath is coming. Was coming for the Babylonians? Again, there is a day of reckoning coming. A day of judgment coming for this entire world. There's only one who can save us from it. The fifth and final woe tells us who can't save us from the Lord's wrath. Can't save us from anybody. Look at verse 18 through 19. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. Here we see the folly of idolatry, brothers and sisters. Idols can't save, they can't teach, they can't speak, they can't even breathe. If you want to read a longer treatment of the Lord's holy sarcasm being played out with idolatry, read Isaiah 44 sometime. It is folly to put your trust in idols. But I think most, if not all of us, know that when it comes to things made of wood and stone, right? But what about our idols? What about the idols of the culture around us that we so easily and often put our trust in? Where are you looking for security, for satisfaction, for salvation? Is it a job? Is it a bank account? Is it your 401k? Is it social security? Is it hoping that Medicaid, Medicare, those things will still be around? Is it your house in your nice neighborhood? What are the things you are putting your hope in, your trust in? Our idols are dumb as well, brothers and sisters. They can't speak, they can't teach us, they can't breathe, and ultimately they can't save or satisfy us. There's only one who can. Which leads us to our last point. Third point we see here in verse 20. The silence. Seeing the wait is over, the woes are coming, and here we see the silence. Idols are silent. But you and I should stand in worshipful silence before the the God who alone is powerful enough to save and good enough to satisfy. Look at verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. We're back to where we started. The Lord isn't afraid of your questions, or even of your complaints. But like Job, there comes a point where we just put our hands over our mouth, where we are silent before the Lord and where we live by faith. Again, we see this in Psalm 73, Asaph going in, complaining and questioning the Lord. But as he enters into the Lord's presence, even with his complaining, questioning spirit, He is transformed there in the Lord's presence. 
maybe how you came in today with a lot of complaints, a lot of questions, being perplexed. What are those things that are leading you to question the Lord, to complain against the Lord right now? I can almost guarantee you, you're not gonna get answers to all those things in this life. But I can guarantee you, if you come to trust in Jesus, you will find that he is good and that he is trustworthy. And you can entrust all of your unanswered questions to him. So the call for us is for us to stop pridefully and foolishly looking to the things of this world that will pass away and look in faith again to the only one who can save and satisfy us. As we look to respond to this word together today, as we look towards the Lord's table, it'd be good for us to spend some time in worshipful silence before him. Here in Habakkuk 2, God's enemies are promised that they will face his judgment, that they will drink the cup of his wrath. But the truth of this table is that Jesus came and he drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross so that you might taste the sweetness of his grace. Jesus drank damnation dry for his enemies so that you might be welcomed in as a part of his family through faith. Romans chapter eight is one of the sweetest chapters in the Bible. Because we think about our unanswered questions, it's good for us to spend some time there. Paul tells us that our God did not spare his own son from us, but freely gave him up for us. He says, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God has given up his only son for us. He will give us everything we need. He promises in that chapter as well that he's able to work all things together for our good. So even with our complaints and unanswered questions, we can entrust those things to him. And he's given us his son. He will give us everything we need. And ultimately in the end, with redeemed eyes, we'll be able to see how he's been able to work everything together for our good and for his glory in the end as this world turns into a place that is filled with his glory. If you're not turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus, we are so glad that you're here. We'd ask as we respond to this word by coming to the Lord's table that you wouldn't come to this table but as always, we'd love for you to come to us. We'd love to talk to you more about what does it mean to live by faith? Is Jesus really trustworthy? So please come to us and have those conversations. For those of you who are turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus, who again may be still filled with questions, may be perplexed, may have all kinds of complaints, this table is a place where we remember what God has done for us in Jesus. Remember that he did not spare his own son from us, but freely gave him up for us. We come and we take the bread that was broken. Remember that Jesus' body was broken to the point of death so that he might offer you eternal life in his kingdom that's coming. We come and we take the cup and we remember again that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, that his blood was shed so that we might be cleansed and so that we might come and taste the sweetness of his grace today. 
So as we prepare our hearts to respond again, take whatever time you need in worshipful silence before the Lord. To confess your sins to the Lord, to repent, to remember God's goodness and what he's done for you. Again, take your complaints to him. He can handle them and entrust them to him. And then come and rejoice at what God's done for us in Jesus. Let me pray the Lord give us grace to do that. Father, in this world where we're promised tribulation, in this world that is still under the effects of the curse of sin, where we see brokenness and death and disease and destruction all around us, we need your grace. We know that faith is a gift, so I pray you would grant us all faith, saving faith in Jesus. We know that you sustain us by your spirit. You sustain our faith, so we pray you would sustain us and keep us. Father, we know that you don't owe us answers to everything in this life. So we pray that you would give us grace to entrust our questions and complaints to you. We thank you for what you have revealed to us, that you have shown your love for us, and that while we are sinners, your enemies, that you sent your son to die for us. Father, we respond to this word by coming to Jesus' table. Father, I pray you would strengthen our faith by what we taste. I pray that we would taste and remember your goodness, your grace to us as we eat this bread and drink this cup. Father, we need you. I pray your spirit would comfort those who are hurting Pray your spirit would convict us where we need to repent of idols that we are trusting in that can never save or satisfy us and help us look to Jesus, the only one who can. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.